This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This Is Democracy. This week, we're going to discuss uh, recent and historical events in Brazil, which is, uh, many of our listeners know, the largest country in uh, South America, but a country that is largely unknown to many Americans, uh, yet a country that's been in the news quite a lot recently with a recent election, a very close election, and recent violence that in some ways seems to mirror, at least it seems to mirror, the violence of January 6th uh, in the United States where a candidate who lost the election, uh, his supporters, in this case uh, former President Bolsonaro's supporters, um, attempted, it it appears, to um, stop uh, the new government from functioning uh, in Brazil or at least appeared to try to express their anger through violence in ways that did seem to echo January 6th in the United States. Uh, we're not going to just focus on the present today, however. We're going to look, as we do every week, at how the history of Brazil uh, helps us to better understand and make sense of what we're seeing today. We're joined by my colleague and friend, uh, Seth Garfield, who is one of the foremost historians of Brazil in the United States today. Seth is a professor of history uh, here at the University of Texas at Austin, and he's the author of three major books, among many articles and various other things. Uh, His first book, Indigenous Struggle at the Heart of Brazil, State Policy, Frontier Expansion, and the Havante Indians, I hope I pronounced that right, uh, 1937 to 1988. His second book, uh, with a wonderful title, In Search of the Amazon, Brazil, the United States, and the Nature of a Region. And then his third book, which I think picks up on some of uh, Seth's writing on commodity issues, is uh, most recently published, uh, Hot Off the Presses, uh, Guarana, How Brazil Embraced the World's Most Caffeine-Rich Plant. And the idea of a caffeine-rich plant at 5 o'clock sounds actually quite enticing right now, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) Seth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on the podcast, uh, Jeremy. It's really a pleasure. Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Professor Garfield, of course, we have um, Zachary Suri's scene-setting poem. What is the title of your poem this week, Zachary? Brasilia Lament. Let's hear it. As I sat with a coffee in the public square, I basked in the memory of somewhere, a place where grass was shining green at dawn. We watched the stars float by on the cool lawn. I believe it was then that you said to me that all our words are buzzes from a single bee. It stings, it stings to think the world has never changed and the ghostly myth of violence forever remains. As I woke up this morning, I wanted pictures on the wall that would make me remember our world before it all, where in my child dreams the giants pranced, the fortune tellers whispered, and the quiet soldiers danced. Wake up, wake up, I think I hear them say, you will see this history again someday. Why we didn't listen, why we didn't care, I do not care to think it was, either here or there. We watched it and we gasped. We watched the world collapse. How mightily intrusive, 
how principally unfair. Sir, may I have an orange juice, or perhaps a dare? Beware, our words are what only beggars seem to find. A vengeance on the cruel, a fennich for the kind. Pens have moved mountains, they have swallowed swords, and again erected reasoning for their ghastly wars. And yet, though we can see the world is rotten, we so clearly have forgotten, despite our thousand different popes that filled again with garbage hopes, our minds become but empty chalices. We go storming presidential palaces. <laughs> <laughs> I love the crescendo there at the end, Zachary. And uh, the references, which are all over the place. What is your poem about? My poem is about the way the ways in which lies, uh, like we saw in the uh, aftermath of the Brazilian elections, uh, how lies unchallenged uh, can fester and cause violence very quickly, actually. And, and, and also how important it is uh, actually to, to, to speak about democracy in a way that's meaningful, approachable, and accessible uh, to people. I, a, a theme that I think is very relevant when we're talking about one of the largest uh, democracies on earth. Excellent, Zachary. Uh, Seth, as, as a historian, someone who's devoted much of your life to studying this country, how, how have you reacted to many of the issues Zachary references in his poem, the recent disorder of violence, uh, uncertainty in Brazil? Well, first, I wanted to congratulate Zachary on that beautiful poem. Um, I reacted the way many did with just shock and sadness. Um, you know, to see a country... Uh, whose democratic institutions are under siege to see a recourse to violence, the repudiation of a fair election, and is, is heartbreaking and it's frightening. Um, and I think for those of us who study Brazil and who have a special cariño, as we say, or a tenderness for the country because of its culture and the warmth of its people for the most part, you know, to see this discord and to see this acrimoniousness in tearing a society apart is just been has really been devastating. And, and is this something you expected, Seth, or have you been surprised? So this is a good question. Um, now, in retrospect, um, when, when I think about the dramatic transformations that Brazil, I think, has undergone over the last several decades uh, since the return to democracy, which for those of us heralding or hoping for a more democratic and progressive Brazil, we're very heartened by these changes because Brazil made, I think, great strides in terms of creating a more progressive society, a more um, democratic society, um, challenging very deeply entrenched um, structures of patriarchy, of homophobia, of racism, anti-indigenism. Um, this all seemed very heartening, but of course, there were those in Brazil who thought otherwise and very much challenged, I believe, by these changes, by these transformations. And so this backlash, um, in some ways, is uh, comprehensible in terms of their fear and their anger um, towards uh, changes in society that threatened the status quo um, and upset the way uh, the, the, the order or the hierarchies that long characterize the society. 
You know, it's something that's always fascinated me, Seth, and and I come at this with with so much ignorance. I've never actually visited Brazil and, and hope to some some point. You should organize it's a trip. It's time for to us, do so, I, Jeremy. You have to get there. <laughs> I, I have every reason to want to. From everything I can tell, as you say, it's a warm party atmosphere, and I definitely want to be there. Um, but from my ignorance, Seth, I mean, it 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 strikes me that there's a contradiction, right? It's such a, Brazil is such a diverse, multi-layered society, uh, multi-racial, uh, filled with so much diversity of opinion and perspective that you can see even from the outside. But yet for so long, um, it, it's had a right-wing repressive government. Um, how, do we, how do we make sense of that contradiction? I'm sure it's probably central to your scholarship in many ways. Um, are you asking about the legacies of authoritarianism or the root, the deeper roots of authoritarianism in Brazil? Yes. Um, yes. Yes. So this is an interesting question too, because um, I think that can be answered on various levels. I think in terms of its formal politics, Brazil's democratic traditions are quite um, young. I mean, in the longer history of Brazil, you have a period from 1946 to 64 prior to the military coup where you did have a multi-party democracy um, that uh, with competitive election, free, fair, free and fair elections, et cetera. But as we know, which culminated in the military coup in part, in, in no small part in response to some of the progressive policies that the left of center governments in the 1960s were trying to enact. Then after the return to democracy in 1985 and the constitution of 1988, you've had a, a long spell almost 40 years, basically, of a strengthening of civil society, of you know, free and fair elections, of um, progressive policies that, as I said before, that challenged many of the traditional hierarchies. So that's sort of the formal, like, uh, macro-political, I would say, overview. But it, on a broader level, I, on a broader cultural level, I guess you could say, um, in Brazil, like in most countries, I think there have always been different factions, some more progressive, many some more reactionary. And in some ways, um, uh, looking back over Brazil's the long durée over uh, many centuries of Brazilian history, there were always sectors in society that advocated for uh, better treatment for indigenous peoples during the colonial period or for the abolition of slavery in the 19th century or for women's suffrage in the 20th century. Um, who were up against more conservative groups um, and faced, um, you know, backlash for for these attempts at democratizing Brazilian society. So I, I, that maybe can answer the can give a, a broader overview uh, in which we can place, I think, this more recent swing um, to the right uh, under the presidency of Bolsonaro and these the lingering kind of resentment that um, culminated in that. Uh, violent insurrection in the beginning of January uh, in Brasilia. Could you maybe for our American listeners, uh, which I think make up a large portion of our of our listenership, though not not exclusively American, uh, could you explain maybe the relationship historically, not just between the government of the United States and the government of Brazil, but between the political movements uh, and the political trends, social trends as well, between Brazil and the United States? You'd think just looking at a map that they'd probably be quite closely connected. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And there's been a lot of uh, historical scholarship that's been done recently that's focused on connections between Brazil and the United States um, during the 19th century. And there you see um, right-wing influence and more progressive influence. You have um, efforts on the part of 
um, slaveholders in the United States, um, the southern states, as we know, to expand their influence or, or in Latin America and in Brazil, because Brazil, um, you know, after the abolition of um, uh, slavery in the English colonies, um, Brazil, Cuba, and the United States are the sole slaveholding um, uh, places. Since you have an empire, you have a, a republic, yeah, republic, and you have a colony of Spain. So there were connections there, but there were also connections among abolitionists um, in the United States or between abolition in the United States uh, and Brazil. And I think these connections and these ties persist, of course, into the 20th and the 21st century. We know from some interesting scholarship scholarship that's been done on the far right um, and conservative uh, religious movements in the United States and in Brazil, that there were close connections between these groups um, in terms of sharing ideas, publications, um, um, strategies, basically, to influence uh, the political realm. So the two countries are often compared, Zachary, correctly, because they're the two, not only because they're both the two largest countries of the Americas and are both um, bear the legacy of slavery and um, racism and racial hierarchies, and uh, our continental nations that whose frontier expansion came at the great expense of indigenous peoples, but because you you have shared um, connected movements that link the two countries in terms of their politics uh, and their political orientation. And and it's worth reminding our listeners that Brazil is one of the few countries that maintains slavery. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, Seth, three decades after the end of the U.S. Civil War, is that correct? Uh, it's 1888, so it would be two, a little more than two. Yes, a little more than two. But so certainly, it was it was it was the last country in the Americas to abolish slavery, and and that was also a violent process, as it was in the United States. Correct? Uh, no, actually, it wasn't so much, um, oh, okay. and that's one of the diff- Yes, that's one of the differences in terms of the way abolition was achieved. Uh, towards the end of slavery, you did have um, enslaved peoples running away from the plantations and. Their resistance certainly contributed to undermining um, slavery, which was already a sort of moribund institution in Brazil because of the way in which it was being gradually phased out through free womb laws and through other types of laws that were restricting um, uh, slavery. And of course, the transatlantic slave trade, which was critical to the reproduction of the uh, of slavery in Brazil, had been um, cut off since 1850, basically. But in the case of Brazil, um, the process was not as violent, certainly not as the United States, where we had a civil war. And in some ways, um, this reaffirmed in the minds of elites and conservatives this idea um, of a peaceful nation, a nation in which you know racial harmony and democracy was um, unique and exceptional, certainly from the United States, which is, has which has had its liabilities, of course, for. Afro-descendant populations in Brazil because they've come up against this idea that there is no racism in Brazil or there is no racial discrimination. And in fact, um, just connecting this to more contemporary trends in Brazil, what I would say is since the early 2000s, you have affirmative action policies that are enacted by the left of center workers party. And these did bring more Afro-Brazilians into universities. And this is one of the changes that I mentioned earlier on in the podcast in ways in which transformations in Brazil's society over the last decades did were noteworthy in empowering historically um, disempowered groups, but also produced a type of backlash um, as those in Brazil who felt disadvantaged by these changes or cheated 
um, that, uh, uh, and, and, and um, in turn, um, supported more right-wing governments that were critical uh, of these progressive policies. So, Seth, is that how you primarily see Bolsonaro and his movement as a backlash against what in some ways were successful progressive changes? I think there are a number of factors here. Um, Bolsonaro had support for, for, for various reasons. I would say the most immediate or most sensationalist reason was, um, as you might know, this tremendous corruption scandal known as Operation Car Wash, um, which involved billions of dollars in graft and kickbacks and brought down um, the brought down large segments of Brazil's political class, of its business class, and it, uh, discredited completely um, uh, key aspects of the political system because the corruption was so rampant and so egregious. And Bolsonaro, in many ways, car- uh, excuse me, he um, cashed in on um, popular disgust that Brazilians felt to see this corruption running so rampant when basic public services were not being tended to and um, you know, poverty still afflicts large swaths of the population. So that was, you know, a, a significant factor. He also played a great deal on the rise in crime and violence, particularly in Brazil's cities. Brazil's murder rate is three times as high as the United States. So it's a factor that primarily affects poor people in Brazil. But for the middle class, this is a significant concern. And he could play to a get tough on crime sort of um, approach. Um, but I do think that these other changes that I mentioned earlier in terms of more progressive policies that have been put into place regarding affirmative action, environmental protections that angered, you know, large landowners and those linked to agribusiness, very stunning advances in terms, at least on paper, in terms of the um, creation of indigenous reserves and protection of indigenous lands, Um, special protections that were extended to the descendants of uh, runaway enslaved peoples. Um, the legalization of uh, same-sex marriage. All of this had happened or had been intensified, we could say, in the decade, in the several decades, in the two decades um, prior to his um, election. And I do think that um, there were, that was another source of his support. And of course, one thing I didn't touch on was the, uh, the, the importance of the evangelical um, Christian vote in Brazil, which is also a product of transformation that has occurred in Brazil over the last mm, half de- uh, half century, in which Brazil's um, Protestant and largely evangelical Protestant population or Pentecostal population has now ballooned to almost 30% of Brazil's overall population. And some say it will ultimately surpass the Catholic population of Brazil. And many of these voters tend to be conservative in their um cultural politics, in their quote-unquote traditional values, and also in embracing more individualistic um, beliefs about um, hard work and capitalist work ethic and these types of ideas. I have to ask, Seth, because it does seem at least at the surface to have a certain parallel with the United States, why the growth of this evangelical movement over the last half century? So... This um, is connected. To, there's a number of answers for that question as well. Um, <laughs> part of it, uh, <laughs> I would say a lot of it has to do with the changes that were unleashed um, during the military government. So first of all, because the military government had a very um, conservative political and, and cultural agenda um, and was certainly threatened by the progressive Catholic Church and liberation theology. 
um, they turn to um, evangelical leaders uh, and right-wing Catholic leaders, actually, to support and legitimize their regime. And they rewarded these um, leaders and these communities, I guess you could say, by um, extending uh, TV and radio licenses that gave evangelical leaders a greater um, ability to disseminate their message um, far-flung across Brazil. So that's one factor. Also, under military rule, Brazil uh, uh, switches from being a predominantly rural nation to a predominantly urban nation. So more than 80%, it might even be more than 90% of Brazil's population at this point is urban. So you had a very rapid infusion of population from the countryside as people are coming to the cities looking for work in industry or in um, government. Many end up in um, service and informal economy. But uh, you have an uprooted community in many ways. And this is also concomitant to this. You have a large migration to the Amazon region. Um, for uh, those who are seeking, you know, a better life on the frontier. But I think what these two large streams of migration have in common is you have a sort of uprooted communities or, or populations that are seeking to form new communities in urban areas. They're often terribly underserved by both the government as well as the Catholic Church in terms in terms of social services. And you have evangelical churches moving in, uh, providing these services, but also you know, giving people um, new 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 ways to look at life, to look at um, theology, to look at um, uh, questions of, of justice and, and to make sense of the sort of wrenching changes that they've been through. And I, so I think all of these factors and probably many more, um, you know, contribute to this um, rapid spread. This is a process we know that's going on, you know, globally in Africa as well. And this is also a process, getting back to your question, Zachary, in which um, evangelical groups in the United States were, have worked closely with um, uh, those in in Brazil uh, in terms of sharing publications, leader uh, conferences, leadership, this sort of global movement that has been very important, I think, in shifting um, the geopolitical scene internationally as you have more conservative groups that are um, manifesting themselves in uh, through political uh, power and through political movements. Speaking of, of of big geopolitical problems that need to be solved, uh, how what role does environmentalism play in this? I think many Americans uh, probably hear about Brazil in the context of the Amazon rainforest, uh, and particularly. Uh, in the Bolsonaro administration's decision to allow more deforestation. Uh, where does the protection of the Amazon in particular, but also the sort of nascent conservationist movement of the past few decades, uh, t take place in this sort of political timeline you've lined out for? That's a great question as well. Thank you. That also has its roots, I would say, um, in the military period, because uh, under the military government between 1964 and 1985, the regime made a very concerted push to develop the Amazon as a geopolitical project. There were many factors. Um, there was a sense that um, the wealth of the Amazon, mineral or other types of um, agricultural ranching, et cetera, could certainly contribute to um, the development of Brazil. But there was also this sort of paranoia that if the region were left, un, quote unquote, undeveloped or less populated, um, that it could be seized by other countries or invaded. This had been a longstanding fear among uh, 
Brazilian um, military officials and, and nationalists. There was also an effort to relocate uh, poorer populations from uh, the more settled, re- the more historically longer uh, settled regions of Brazil, at least by Europe, Europe, European and African descendant peoples, to move them to uh, the Amazon and thereby thereby diffuse land conflicts that had been festering. So with that comes deforestation because the, the military builds roads. One of the leading sources of deforestation, roads allowing for greater penetration by cattle ranchers, by loggers, etc., uh, by settlers. So with that came a backlash and sort of an um, uproar over the accelerated rate of deforestation, which now reaches about 17% of the Amazon region, which is quite alarming. Um, many climate scientists speak of the Amazon reaching a so-called tipping point uh, uh, if this type of transformation um, of the ecosystems continue. But that uh, environmental story, if we want to see some of the positive things that came out <laughs> in the last decades, you know, in many ways, during the 2000s, you had um, a reduction, especially under the presidency of Lula, um, of deforestation in the Amazon. You had more effective government agencies, environmental agencies, that were um, overseeing or monitoring deforestation. You had greater reservation of indigenous areas. So there was a a very concerted effort to um, set aside uh, land for environmental purposes, for indigenous peoples, for the descendants of um, Afro-Brazilians. Under Bolsonaro, you had this odd and very eerie, certainly from a historian's perspective, you know, resurrection of that 1960s, 1970s jingoistic um, rhetoric regarding the Amazon. It's not really a surprise because Bolsonaro was an open and very um, enthusiastic admirer of the military regime and often called for return of the military, uh, a military takeover, or, and spoke very glowingly about the repression and the uh, you know the order that the military instituted under its during its two decades uh, in ruling the country, but that um, that language that the Amazon belongs to Brazil, that we have to um, you know do, we're not going to let foreign environmentalists or anthropologists or Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> tell us how we should <laughs> how we should uh, you know. This is our this is our land. This is a question of national sovereignty, etc. This really got um, ramped up under Bolsonaro, and Bolsonaro did do a great deal of damage because it was not just the rhetoric, and the rhetoric is certainly contributes to violence, as we know. But it also um, what also characterized his government was the fact that uh, these protections were rolled back, and most critically, the funding for many of these agencies that were instrumental in um, slowing deforestation was slashed. So there was a very conscious and concerted effort to um, eviscerate the agencies that uh, had been, and and the agencies that had been empowered to reduce deforestation and to look after the most, the traditional and the most vulnerable populations of the Amazon region. So under Lula, there's, you know, he's vowed to stop this. He's created a new Ministry for Indigenous Affairs. He's appointed Marina, Marina Silva, who's a very uh, renowned and um, uh, um, respected uh, environmentalist and a former Minister of the Environment for Brazil as his 
Minister of the Environment. So there's certainly a, an effort on, on the new government to try to reverse course, but many wonder, um, with all the damage that's been done, um, how effective the new regime will be in a sense. Uh, and, and Seth, I'm so glad you brought up uh, President Lula. I wanted to spend a little time talking about him as well. Um, as I understand it, um, he's someone who comes out of the workers' movement, right, and, and labor activism and progressive politics in, in Brazil. He was president, as I'm sure most of our listeners know, and some might even uh, remember. He was president from 2003 until 2010, and now he's come back to office, in a sense, to try to rescue, I guess, the the left mm-hmm. in Brazil. Um, first of all, what what is your reaction to that as a historian? And then where do you see this going? Well, it's a stunning reversal of fortune for Lula, correct? Um, one could argue that the story of Lula, um, his sort of triumphant return, um, it's uh, it's quite remarkable but in many ways, one could argue that he should not have been um, blocked from running for office to begin with um, back, what would it have been, 2018. Um, you know, as part of that investigation to that massive corruption scandal, um, he, Lula himself was thrown into jail. But the conviction was, was uh, ultimately thrown out because of the irregularities in which the um, the presiding judge was uh, communicating with the prosecutor, the way in which the case was tried, the evidence was seemingly very um, tendentious. So there's that, I guess, I would like to put, you know, into the historical record. And, and many, you know, those of those who are sympathetic or, or critical to what happened to Lula would, would point out. But I think um, his um, return also shows that Bolsonaro's um, government was so disastrous. I didn't talk about the 700,000 Brazilians who lost their lives to COVID because he was a COVID denialist and significantly hampered the um, public health measures that could have uh, mitigated the impact of this, uh, this pandemic. I think it's a, it's a testament that although Lula did score a very narrow victory, uh, and Bolsonaro did obtain a frighteningly large number of votes in Brazil, it still was a victory, and it counted on um, the alliances that um, Lula was able to strike with other parties, including the the center right party, which during the um, uh, during the thirteen years that the Burkers Party was uh, in office or held presidential office, you know, was a fierce opponent uh, of the Workers Party, but now recognizing that they both had, you know, the Bolsonaro um, far right um, prospect as as a greater enemy came together to to de- defeat Bolsonaro. And do you see this return of Lula to the presidency? Is is it a return to the period he was in office before? Have we stepped back into that period, or do you see a different a different kind of Lula presidency emerging? That's an excellent question. Um, that's a tough question. Uh, you know, Lula's presidency um, was one of great prosperity for Brazil, you know, um, for Brazil in general. You had millions of people who were lifted out of poverty. You had um, a commodity boom in which uh, largely driven by imports or exports to China. 
in which, um, you know, Brazil's agribusiness really was uh, thriving and the country was in very good shape. This is when Brazil wins the um, option to host the Olympics and everything's looking wonderful. Under his successor, Dilma Rousseff, uh, you know, those conditions would already change. Um, China's economy is not too, doing too great now. So it's not clear. It's, it, I think it's fair to say that the global conditions don't favor um, the, the current presidency of Lula as much as they did during his first two mandates. Um, there's also the Bolsonaro factor, which, of course, during his during his presidency, you didn't have the eruption of this uh, violent and uh, virulent uh, right-wing movement. And so it's unclear how that will play out um, over the course of his presidency. Uh, we saw the, you know, some of the recourses to which the far right um, would resort in terms of that attack in, on January 8th in Brasilia. So one hopes that that kind of will discredit um, sectors of the movement, but it probably will be a bit bumpy for Brazil as it's as it will be for the United States over the next years. What was striking to me, Seth, uh, as someone watching the events in Brazil through the American media, of course, so I'm getting a, a filtered view, but what was striking to me were two things uh, that I think have some historical precedent, right? One was what appeared to be the um, clash not just between the Bolsonaro and the um, Lula supporters, but also between different levels of government. If I'm not mistaken, the local official in charge of the region around Brasilia is accused of not having responded quickly and was, was I think, uh, forced out of office by, by the Supreme Court justice, uh, if, I'm, if, if I have that right. Uh, yes, I believe that's correct. Mm-hmm. So, so the so the the different levels of government fighting one another, and and I think we often forget that Brazil, like the United States, is a federalist system. Uh, the other thing that was striking to me was how, in contrast to the past uh, in Brazil and other countries in Latin America, it did seem in this case, and I'm thinking of the contrast with Chile in particular, which is a case I know a little bit about, that the military was firmly on the side of the democratically elected government. That, that seems to be a little different from some of the history we've seen before. I wonder if you, if you would comment on, on those two observations. Yes. Well, under Bolsonaro, you certainly had, um, in particular, the judicial system, the, ju- the judiciary, excuse me, that did um, speak out, that did attempt to rein in um, uh, policies uh, of Bolsonaro, uh, power grabs, um, some of the authoritarian initiatives um, that he either encouraged or embraced or some of the uh, conspiracy theories that he hoped to advance in order to delegitimize um, Brazilian democracy and the electoral system in particular. You had pushback from the press too as well um, against this idea of fake news. So, uh, which of course is another transformation that occurs in Brazil over the last you know several decades, the explosion of social media and how that's affected or corrupted, you know, public discourse and civil discourse, et cetera. Um, so that was the first question. Um, the second question, um, ref- refresh my memory, I'm sorry, Jeremy, what was the second question sure, about? Sure. So, yeah, sorry to throw so much at you, Seth, but you're, you're so brilliant at making sense of this for us. <laughs> um, the, the second question was was about the military, right? Traditionally, those yes. of us who are non-experts are always concerned, particularly, I have to say, in South America, about the military often being on the side of the coup plotters, not on defending yes. democracy. 
Yes, thank you. I'm sorry, but I, I didn't remember that. Right. So the military did show restraint, which is very um, heartening. Um, the coup plotters, you know, one of their strategies prior to um, storming the the uh, Congress and the Supreme Court and the presidential palace in Brasilia uh, was to camp out, as you as you I think referred to when you were talking about the uh, governor of, of Brasilia allowing. Um, or not providing enough security um, uh, that might have precluded that terrible attack. But these coup, you know, these these right wing supporters of Bolsonaro, um, you know, camped out in front of the military um, barracks, basically encouraging or calling upon the military to intervene. So that was something that we know took place in 1964. There, uh, prior to the and leading up to the military coup that would last um, 21 years, in that. Um, you know, right-wing civilians, um, business people, the press, housewives, etc., were clamoring for the military to intervene, which they did, and that that hasn't happened now. But you know, as you know, and could tell us much more about Jeremy, the the ways in which democracy is under siege, or under threat now globally, many have argued is not so much from the um, hardcore military intervention, but the gradual but steady erosion of um, democratic processes and procedures and institutions. And I think Bolsonaro, uh, uh, you know, certainly did his damage and tried to wreak, you know, tremendous havoc on Brazil, on those on Brazilian institutions, um, through his conspiracy theories, through his, um, fake news and through his, um, allegations and accusations and through his policies and his, uh, budgetary decisions. Right. And so we're not we're not in the sense out of the woods yet. In fact, uh, we might face a different kind of threat from what we faced in mm-hmm. 1964, for example. Right. So, Seth, you, you've elucidated so many complex issues uh, for us. You've given us, I think, a, a whole course here in a few minutes, which is really <laughs> phenomenal. We, we, we always like to close our discussions uh, by showing or thinking a little bit about how this history uh can help us not to find a silver bullet solution going forward, but at least to be on a better pathway or come up with some better pathways moving forward. And I, and I guess for many of our listeners who are in the United States or somehow connected to U.S. policymaking, I guess the question I wanted to close with, with, with you on is what can and should the United States do to help and what role can American citizens play in that? Well, I think the United States, the Biden administration was very effective in immediately recognizing the results of the election um, in October and thereby um, immediately uh, legitimizing, throwing its weight behind um, Lula's victory. So this is important. Um, I think that um, democratic and progressive groups in the United States do, you know, have to and do work with partners in Brazil, whether it's environmental groups, um, indigenous groups, women's groups, LGBTQ groups, to ensure that the hard fought and hard won um, advances that these groups have made in Brazil are not eroded. If they have been um, lessened, that they're restored under the government of Lula. Um, democracy is fragile, and um, those of us who, who seek to preserve it need to be very vigilant about the ways in which, and proactive, uh, we have to be vigilant and proactive in defending it and ensuring that those groups who seek to a more regressive, a less progressive, a more 
authoritarian and more hierarchical type of society do not prevail because there's certainly great strides that have been made on that front and that continue to be made on that front to roll back the advances that Brazilian society, I think, has achieved over the last few decades. That's super helpful. Uh, Zachary, as as a young person who cares deeply about democracy, and uh, it's something we talk about every week, of course, on the podcast here, um, do you find that this discussion um, of events in Brazil, do, do you see it as opening optimistic pathways forward, or do you do you find it discouraging? Well, I think that it's, it's hard not to look at the past uh, few years uh, in the history of the Western Hemisphere and the history of the world and not be a little depressed. Uh, by the political leadership we've had. But I do think that uh, this year offers us an opportunity, um, here we are in January, to to make a real difference. I, I think that, that what the elections uh, in Brazil in the past year and uh, in the United States uh, two years ago show us is that uh, voting uh, and, and making our voices heard, even as individuals, can have a big difference, particularly in these close elections that seem to dominate world politics. Uh, and I think it's also important uh, as a reminder uh, that our challenges, the challenges we face at home in the United States, are, are not simply challenges that we face, but challenges that our neighbors face right. and challenges that we have a responsibility to, so- to solve or to help solve, not just at home, but but abroad as well. Right. And, and I think your comments and, and, mm-hmm. and Seth's insights uh, really, really connect us to our theme from the very beginning of our podcast four years ago, right? It's Franklin Roosevelt talking about the next chapter of democracy in the 1930s, uh, who reminds us that the United States is part of a global mosaic of democracies. Uh, and that means that we're connected to what happens in places like Brazil, but, but it also means that we can't strong arm our way into fixing these problems at home or abroad, that it's a more complex relationship. And I think Seth has really given us a broad historical understanding of the, the difficult choices and the long-term commitment, I think, as you put it, Seth, that's really, really important here. Um, Seth Garfield, thank you so much for joining us uh, and sharing so much insight uh, with us. I think this was a classic case of how basic historical knowledge, or it's probably basic historical knowledge to you, can open up so many ways of thinking for those like myself, I have to admit, who are ignorant of that history. Thank you, Jeremy. This was really a pleasure um, to have this opportunity. So I thank you for inviting me to be on your program. And thank you, Zachary, for those um, lovely and insightful words that you said at the end of the podcast. I certainly agree with all of your your thoughts. Thank you. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week's episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.